First of all, you can see how much my sabbatical did for me. I'm not even looking at the bulletin anymore. And secondly, I, I encourage everyone to come to that Women's Day of Pampering. I know I'll be there. Somebody got to keep Brother Stanley company there. It's just, he, he just can't be there alone. I'm going to pick up the series on the Holy Spirit back in September, so I'm kind of jumping around this summer. And I'm reading from Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26 today. And it reads this way. One day Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat, and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been laying on, and went home praising God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. This is one of the more interesting stories of healing in the Bible. Jesus was healing inside a house, and a group of men brought a paralyzed man. We don't know whether he's paralyzed from the neck down or the waist down, and they brought him to be healed to Jesus. And it says they were carrying him. The first obvious lesson of this text is that this paralyzed man had a community of friends, a community of faith, carrying him into the presence of Jesus. That's what we're supposed to do when life breaks people, isn't it? We as the church are to help carry them until they get back on their feet. One writer I read talked about how there was this small suburban church. It looked like 10,000 other little churches. It did not have anything unique or creative about it, and the preacher was a lousy preacher. You know what that's like. And, but there was a woman there named Deborah Bates, and her husband left her. He went to, be, to find his happiness with a, another woman. And so Deborah turned to the people of that church. And she cried on the shoulders of the people of that church. She cried out her rejection and her rage and her hurt. They carried her. And she had practical needs too. You know, when he left her, she had four kids, a deteriorating house, and a junker for a car, a hoopty. <laughs> I learned from uh, Carmen on the hoopty. <laughs> and so they, they, they took care of her. They carried her. The 20 individuals from that small congregation babysat for her with her four kids. They painted the house. They repaired her car over and over. And one man, a businessman in the church, hired her. And trained her for a new career so she could support herself. And a wealthy woman in that church said, I will pay for your kid's college education. Yeah. Emotionally, financially, spiritually, they saved her. 
She came to know the love of Christ in a new way because a Christian community refused to let her be crushed. They refused to let the devil have the final word. You know, there are some things a church can do without and still make. You know, you don't need the world's greatest preacher to make it as a church. You don't need the world's greatest worship band or the world's greatest facility. There is one thing a church cannot do without, though. They have to love Jesus, and they have to love each other. Love covers a multitude of sins, brothers and sisters. We all need people who can help carry us through the hard times. We do. They carried this woman. They would not let her just sit there in defeat. And as I said before, this is what churches are supposed to do. Now, we're not supposed to do for people what they should do for themselves. That's codependence. Doing for others what they should be doing always backfires, doesn't it? Ask any addict. Ask any people related to an addict. You're not supposed to clean your kid's room. How are they going to learn to clean their house if they can't clean their room? You, you're not supposed to, you know, never mind. I, it's too, per, too personal. <laughs> Being responsible for the responsibilities of others is never healthy. There is a way of helping that hurts. Paul said in Galatians 6, bear one another's burden. And in the Greek it means bear one another's overload. Not load, overload. Care, help people bear what they cannot carry, but don't help them bear and carry what they should carry. That's what that means. But we all need people who can carry us through the hard times. And let's face it, what I'm talking about is developing deep relationships in the body of Christ. But that's scary sometimes, isn't it? It's hard to move from superficial friendliness into real deep friendship. And you know why? Because a lot of us have been hurt the worst in our lives by people who should have loved us the most in our lives. Some of us were betrayed by family. We, I'm sure we got a room full. Some of us were betrayed by other churches. We've all learned that real heart-to-heart -heart relationship involves risk that scares us. But no risk, no gain. Christian community means I risk telling you or someone else my stuff so that we can get close in the name of Jesus despite the betrayals of the past. It takes commitment and love and like marriage, you know, marriage is a leap of faith. you got to be a little crazy to get married, right? I hear you. <laughs> a husband was wrestling with patterns of compulsive sexual behavior. On business trips, he would watch porn. He had secrets he knew that if they ever came to light, it put his marriage at risk. And so one of the hardest things he ever did was tell his wife his secrets. He was so ashamed he could not look at her in the face. He asked her for forgiveness. He promised her he would find support and accountability in a trustworthy relationship. He said he would do whatever it was needed to help him overcome this addiction. He tried to guess what her response would be. He knew she would be hurt. He knew she would, he hoped she would be surprised. He hoped she would forgive him. He feared she might hate him and leave him. But when she responded, it was in a way he never dreamed. She was silent. Her eyes filled with tears. Then haltingly, she began to tell him her story. It turned out, like most of us, she had secrets of her own. 
And while she was in high school, a youth pastor at her church had betrayed his position of trust to enter into a sexual relationship with her. And she had carried the regret and the guilt and the shame of that alone for 15 years. But because of her husband's decision, she gained the courage to be transparent with him. Was it hard? Yes. Was it messy? Yes. Was it risky? Yes. Was it painful? Yes. But this couple experienced a level of healing and closeness and intimacy with each other they had never known before. If they had not opened up to each other, they would have been married for 40 or 50 years, yet gone to their graves to some extent as strangers to each other. This couple would tell you that the decision to be transparent was the greatest gift they ever gave their relationship. After years of hiding, they learned at least a little of what it means to be fully revealed and still loved. As what Genesis says about Adam and Eve, they were naked and not ashamed. What I'm saying is you need to find someone in your life, other believers in your life who, who you can trust and who have spiritual maturity, who you can share your real life with and can help carry you to where Jesus wants you to be. Because it's amazing what a little bit of truth can do, isn't it? What a little bit of grace can do, isn't it? What a little bit of accountability can do with the real issues we have in our lives. Now, you can't create these friendships in 10 weeks during a book study or with a quick icebreakers at a party. It takes vulnerability. It takes risk. It takes time. It takes sharing life together. Only in such ways are true friends made. John Eldridge in his book, Walking, Waking the Dead, that would be something, Walking the Dead. Anyway, he writes about real Christian community. He said, we, in real Christian community, we hear each other's stories. We discover each other's glories and strengths. We learn to walk with God together. We pray for each other's healing. We cover each other's back. This small core of fellowship is an essential ingredient for the Christian life. Jesus modeled it for us for a reason. Sure, he spoke to the masses, but where he really poured his life into was 12 men. And what we discover is that real love and real discipleship and real transformation and healing took place in boats and in, 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 out in the wilderness and around campfires and walking along roads. Community will not be found in this sanctuary this morning. Now, there's lots of reasons to come to church. I'm not telling you don't come back. We come here to worship. There are ways we worship here that we can worship nowhere else. We come here for the word of God and to be educated and for discipleship. We come here to give and be a part of a global mission. And let us not forget the free babysitting involved. <laughs> I thought somebody might run the aisles on that. But what really builds community will not happen as you listen to me this morning. It will, be happen, it will happen as someone going through a divorce has you holding their hand. It will happen when somebody's kids are off on drugs when you sit there and you cry with them. It will happen as you sit there and listen to someone as their sponsor as they struggle with an addiction. Let me ask you this morning, who has your back? Who is there when you need to be carried? Because every one of us will need to be carried at some point in our lives. Such friendships cannot be manufactured. You are to pray for them and look for them and take small risks to find them. And you kind of wade into the water. 
By the way, the greatest way I know to carry someone is to carry them in prayer to Jesus. Sometimes when I'm dealing with a very depressed person, I tell them, when you're depressed, it's very hard to detect God's gentle presence or feel his nudges or hear his whispers. Depression is a pain so intense that it numbs you on the inside. You know, like your thumb goes numb when you hit it hard with a hammer. It hurts so bad you can't feel it anymore. When depressed, God almost always seems very far away. It seems like he's abandoned you. You can't feel him. And you know why you can't feel him during depression? Because your pain screams louder than his whispers. I just, and I tell people, I just want you to know, God hasn't gone anywhere. He will never leave you or forsake you. He's as close as he's ever been. He's closer than you know. But because of the pain, you won't feel him. And prayer will seem futile because you don't feel him. In fact, if you're really, in, when you're deeply depressed, the more you pray, the more you tend to get more depressed about it. Because you're going, I'm praying, but God just seems as distant as ever. So I tell people, I will pray for you. I will hold you in prayer this week or longer. Know that you do not need to be spiritual this week. I will be your substitute this week in prayer and faith. I will have faith for both of us. So you let yourself relax because now you are being carried. That's what those men who carried this paralytic to Jesus did. In other words, it says when Jesus saw their faith, he was moved. Jesus started saving the world by training 12 people how to be family. And when such a family functions together in love and in the spirit, it becomes a formidable force. In this story, these men on a mission for their friend could not and would not be stopped. You see, the more we connect to each other, the higher we function, the greater the possibilities. Did you know, and, and, and this, this is where I'm turning into Mr. Bill Nye, the science guy. Did you know that there is virtually no distinguishable difference between a squid neuron in its brain and a human brain cell, a human neuron in our brains? Why are we smarter than squids, then you ask? Well, first is one is numbers. We have a lot more neurons, a lot more brain cells. We have 100 million brain cells in our head. Some of you should rejoice if you realized what I said. <laughs> but more than that, it's the connection between the brain cells. Do you know each brain cell in your head has a thousand other connections with other brain cells in your head? In other words, the number, we have 100 million brain cells, but we have 100 trillion brain cells, that, uh, connections that hook them all together. This is why we are smarter than squids, some of us. And the more we are connected, the higher we function, especially in the spiritual realm. Jesus emphasized that Christians worshiping together, praying together, agreeing together, loving together, created entirely new possibilities in the spiritual realm and in this world. In fact, he intentionally set it up that way. If we are going to change the world, we have to do it together. If we are going to be all we can be, we have to do it together. If we are going to bring heaven to earth, we have to do it together. God designed it that way. That's why there's a church in this world. You know, 
there are all kinds of studies on what it, the benefits of being connected to each other. Did you know that the number one health factor in your life, it is not how much you exercise? It is not what kind of food you eat? It is not your blood pressure? It is not whether you smoke or not? Did you know the number one health factor in your life is how connected you are to people who love you? That's the number one health factor. The number one cause of death, as they have studied it in America, is loneliness. And even things like cigarette smoking and overeating and physical inactivity, if you're really connected to someone, it tends to override those things. You can see it in the life of Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill had a wonderful marriage with his wife, lifelong. He was deeply connected to his family. He loved his kids. His kids adored him. He was connected to his nation. He had a deep purpose in his work. But Winston Churchill's health habits were awful. His diet was awful. He ate everything you're not supposed to eat. He smoked cigars all the time. When he wasn't making a speech, every, what do you see every time you see a picture of Winston Churchill? He's got a cigar. He drank way too much. He had weird sleep habits. He was awake when most people were asleep and asleep when most people were awake. And he was completely sedentary. He did a lot of his work lying in bed. And when he really felt frisky, he'd get up and go to a desk. And yet this man lived to be nearly 90 years old. And somebody asked him, Mr. Churchill, do you ever exercise? And he replied, the only exercise I get is serving as a pallbearer for my friends who died while they were exercising. That is, that's my dude right there. I love this guy. I never thought my role model would be a short, fat, bald Brit who died 50 years ago. Connectedness is also critical for our happiness. Every study shows that the kind of relationships you have with people it matters more than IQ in terms of happiness. It matters more than attractiveness. It matters more than money. It matters more than career. We were made to connect to God and to each other. And we do not do well without either. The other thing I like about the men carrying this paralytic was that they were unconventional. They, they, they didn't do what other, everybody else was doing. They didn't follow Amy Vanderbilt's rules of etiquette. They broke in line. What an unbrethren in Christ thing to do. And they were so desperate for their friend's healing, they took him up on a roof. And then they tore a hole in the roof and lowered him down in front of Jesus. I could hear, can't you, the owners of the house, can't you hear? Call 911, somebody's tearing up our roof. Where is a good Roman centurion when you need one? They're down at Roman Donuts. Anyway, <laughs> I went to Dunkin' Donuts the other day. There, were, there, there they were. <laughs> a Roman centurion. It's so easy to domesticate our spiritual journeys, isn't it? For many people, being a good Christian is the same as being a nice American. No, it's not. No, it's not. We are part of a kingdom that has different rules, very different rules than the rules of good citizenship here. There's some overlap, of course. 
But I've got news for some of us. Jesus came to heal us. He came to transform us. He didn't come to make us normal. Jesus came to make us healthy spiritually and otherwise. But he didn't try to come and make us like everybody else all around us. The more you care about God, the less you conform to some false efforts to make you normal. Because in a materialistic society, we live in the most materialistic society, society that's ever existed. I hope I don't become normal. In a society that glories, glorifies violence, God help me not be normal. In a culture that elevates the human ego to unprecedented heights, as one speaker I heard said, we are the most narcissistic society in history. God help us not be normal. To be normal in this kind of society is to be spiritually sick. I think that really holy Christians are always a little bit off kilter with the world around us. We're a little crazy according to the world. And you know what? I think a little crazy helps in the spiritual journey. After all, we're supposed to be people who hears God. Does that make us normal or abnormal in these parts? We're supposed to be people who are open to the unpredictable moves of the Holy Spirit. Does that make us normal or abnormal in these parts? We're supposed to be the people who have joy when there's no obvious reason for joy, even in suffering. We're supposed to be people who believe in the invisible more than the visible. We're the people who believe that God, through His Spirit, moves among us in wild and mysterious ways. Is that normal? God help us not be normal. <coughs> We're supposed to be a radical counterculture, and we need each other to do it. I believe God has a wild creative streak in him, and he puts a wild creative streak in us. A streak that loves people irrationally, takes risks, gives without obvious reasons. I believe God makes us different. As Peter says, we are a peculiar people. We're peculiar, which in the Greek means delightfully different, not peculiar as I, my Aunt Bessie. Uh, those who carried their friend to Jesus were a little nuts for God. <laughs> and if they hadn't been, their friend might not have been healed. God help us to be open to the living God and his surprises. What must have amazed these men was G Jesus' first words to their friend who was the paralytic. Remember the first word? You, I would have thought, and what they were hoping for, his first words would have been, take up your mat and walk. But that's not Jesus' first words. Remember what his first words were? Your sins are forgiven you. For years, these friends thought that this man's problem was physical paralysis. But Jesus saw a far less obvious wound that they missed. A wound of sin and of guilt and of shame. I have to tell you something this morning. Jesus has his priorities. And his priorities are that he considers a broken life more in need of healing than a broken body. Did you hear that? He considers sin a bigger problem than cancer. He considers hatred and prejudice a bigger problem than a broken arm. He considers spiritual and relational malfunctions of greater concern than this physical problem. He looked at what, that man and said, your sins are forgiven you. And it stunned everyone there for different reasons. It upset the Pharisees. They're going, hey, 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 hey. Only God can do that. And Jesus said, well, well, we'll talk about that. Jesus knew that our deepest wounds can only be healed by grace. 
That is why he said what he said to that paralyzed man. He looked at him lying on the mat. He didn't say, get up. He said, your sins are forgiven. I remember working with a man who was a veteran, and he had been involved in a guerrilla war. And during that guerrilla war, he had done things that he was deeply ashamed of. He not only had killed soldiers, he had killed civilians. He had not only killed men, but women and people we would consider minors. And when he came here, I remember he was struggling. And I remember we sat out and talked, and he said, I know God can't forgive me for what I've done. He never told me how many, but I know it was a lot. For two years we've worked. For two years we talked. And I told him on the authority of Scripture, I want you to know that Jesus Christ can forgive you. For what Jesus Christ did on the cross, I want you to know he can forgive you. I want you to know the blood of Jesus covers any and every sin, even these, as horrible as they were. After two years, finally one day there was a miracle. The Spirit broke through, and this man believed me. Grace broke through. He believed he was forgiven. Healing took hold. That moment was the turning point in his life. We are called to be conduits of grace to each other. Chuck Rigby gave me a hat to wear around my kids years ago. And the hat says, the beatings will continue until morale improves. (laughs) Unfortunately, many churches adhere to the same philosophy. They're more concerned about behavior and conformity than about healing broken hearts and hurting people. And so they use guilt and fear and shame to attain conformity. They beat people until they think morality or more, yeah, improves. But such methods don't heal. The only thing that can heal us is grace. Beatings like I've just described just make sin go more underground. It makes people play more games. Only grace makes it safe to bring our sins to the light so Jesus can forgive us and make us whole. And a healing community mediates such grace. Every one of us, every now and then, cannot hear God. We've done something or we feel bad about something. And God is saying, I forgive you, but we can't hear him for the noise in our head, the guilt and the shame shouting in our head. Every now and then, we need someone to carry us. Every now and then, we need someone to say, in the name of Jesus Christ, I want you to know you are forgiven. Walk away free. Ben Patterson tells about a pastor from Texas who had a ministry to street gangs. And he led this one really tough street guy, leader of the gang, to Jesus Christ. And it changed his life. And so the pastor said, we need to baptize you. But the pastor, you know, was from a church where they sprinkle. And this kid went, no, 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 I don't want to get sprinkled. I want the the whole deal. I want to go down to the river and I want to go under. And when I come up, I want to be new. And so they took him down to the river. And as he was in the water, this kid, you know, had been in so many fights. His, his nose was crooked from being broken. And, and the pastor thought, well, you know, he's been in so many fights. He probably did that when he was in his gang life. But in the water, the water warped the image. that It made his nose amplified to this pastor as he held him underwater. And, you know, when that kid came out of the water, he grabbed hold of that pastor and he wept. And he wept, and he wept. Finally, after about five minutes, this street kid, this gang leader, 
finally looked up to the pastor and he said, this is the second time in my life I've ever cried. He said, the first was when I was a kid, when my father beat me up and shattered my nose. And that pastor said, I baptized him with water. But that day he baptized us both with his tears. It was a holy moment. All kinds of things got washed away that day. All kinds of the devil's work went down to the drain and into the bottom of the river. And it was because somebody mediated grace. It was because someone said to that kid, your sins are forgiven you. We need to say that because sometimes we can't hear it. I love the movie Apollo 13. You guys watch Apollo 13? I've seen it at least a dozen times. It's about a NASA mission to the moon that went wrong when an oxygen tank exploded. And, and, and of course, you know, then they can't land it. They're just trying to get them back alive. And, of course, that's the origin of the famous line, Houston, we have a problem. And the movie, you know, I've watched it, and I've come to realize the movie's not about a trip to the moon. It's not about space exploration. It's not about technology. It's not even about human achievement. It's about how a whole community of scientists and astronauts and engineers and a praying world carried three men home in a broken ship. It's about the power of human beings coming together for the purpose of saving human lives. And you remember the climax of the movie? They, they go into it where the radio's dead because they're going through the atmosphere and the, and the heat shield and it, you know, the heat just blocks all radio signals. And they said, how will we know whether they've made it or not? And they said, after three minutes, we'll know. Well, three minutes come and go, and there's no radio contact. Three and a half minutes come, and there's no radio contact. Four minutes come, and there's no radio. And you can see in the NASA and, and with the families, you can see it's like, oh, my God, they didn't make it. And finally, at four and a half minutes, there's a crackle on the radio. And there's the voice of Tom Hanks playing James Lovell that says, Houston, this is Apollo 13. And the place erupts. People dance. People cry. People pound each other. Scientists and, and, and engineers who wouldn't know a human emotion if it whapped them up the side of the head. They are dancing and crying. One day there in heaven, there will be greater rejoicing. In that day, even engineers and computer geeks and Swedes and maybe, 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 Maybe Southern Baptists will get up and dance and hug each other and weep for joy. And you know why? Because together we made it home, our true home. Our job is to get each other home. That's why the body of Christ exists. 2,000 years ago, a man's life was changed forever because some friends cared enough to carry him when he couldn't walk. His world went from a three-by-six mat to horizons he never imagined. His life went from lying on a bed to running for, for joy. He went from bondage to freedom because of, not just because he ran into Jesus and Jesus healed him. He was healed because, in part, his friends who helped him get to Jesus. That's our job too, isn't it? Our job is to help each other get to Jesus so we can get healed too. And when we do that, when we do that, we are on our way home, brothers and sisters. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord.
We need each other. I know it's countercultural in an individualistic society that says, you know, I don't have to depend on anyone. I'm a self-made. That is just so much from the pit of hell. We need each other. That's why the body of Christ is here. Find people. Take small risks with people. Become a part of a community of caring. Okay? Okay? You were never meant to be alone. And you were never meant to be lonely. All right? And if you can't think of anything to do, you call me or Pastor Sedra until August the 1st. Or, <laughs> oh, they can call her anyway, she said. Or Pastor Linda or something. Come on. Don't. We need to operate like the body of Christ Jesus designed us to be. Amen? Amen. Amen. I would like um, to do the communion. <laughs> I was going to do something else, but like I said, I'm in such a relaxed mood. We're going to do communion up front today. Again, we ask you to exit from the right and come back in on the left in your section. You do not have to be a member of this church or the Brethren in Christ. We just ask that you love Jesus. Now, up in the front, you will see some of the uh, communion bread in little packets that say gluten-free. If you have a problem, you know, if you are allergic to gluten, these are for you. Please, this is not for everybody. If you can take the regular without, the regular communion bread with, without any problem, take the regular communion bread. This is for people with gluten allergies, and that will be up here for you too. And so I'd like you to join with me as we do a responsive reading. The night when Jesus was betrayed... He took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave to his disciples. We follow his example. Brothers and sisters, this bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Take and eat this bread, remembering that he was born to be our Savior. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Feed on him in your heart and be thankful. The night when Jesus was betrayed, he also took the cup and blessed it and gave it to his disciples. We do likewise. Brothers and sisters, this cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Take this cup, remembering that he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it together and be thankful. And here's how I want us to do just a minute of silence. If you have friends like in the body of Christ like I just talked about, I want you to thank God for them and tell them how much you appreciate them. If you don't, I want you to pray for those kind of friends, okay? One minute of silence. Lord Jesus, as Paul said in, in Ephesians, knit us together in love so that we may show forth the glory of Jesus Christ. Lord, bless this communion as we celebrate not only communion with you, but communion with each other. As we celebrate your love passing through us into each other. 
in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing our final song. Again, the alt- I want the intercessors to come forward. The altar will be open for any kind of prayer. In the first service, there were some really meaningful things going on at the altar. So pr- you see, if you don't know what else to pray for, pray for the people you see up front being prayed for. So anyway, would you lead us in our final song? And if you need prayer for anything, you may come forward.
Praise the Lord for his goodness. Praise the Lord for his life. And praise the Lord that we get to be conduits of his life to each other and to a, to a lost world. Lord, we pray that we will grow ever more in love with you and each other and the people you love, including the lost in the world. Lord, bless us as we leave this place and help us to find the people, Lord, who can help us find you when we can't. Help us find the people who can carry us and lay us at your feet so that we may get up and walk again. Bless us, Jesus. Thank you for your spirit that has moved so wonderfully here today. Touch us and knit your body together in love. In your name we ask it. And God's people say, amen and amen. Go in peace.